The first thing I lost was my parking permit, which isn't a big deal. But then I lost my voting rights, my pension rights, my right to social security. So it was like my world was falling apart. And they also kicked me out of the health insurance. There was only one organization that kept saying, Miss Jacobs, to us, you are and will always be a citizen of the Netherlands. And that was the tax service. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. So we talk about a lot of things on this podcast, everything from how to start a business to specific kinds of businesses that we're obsessed with, like productized services, e-commerce, blogging, podcasting. Lately, we've been thinking a lot about Amazon and investing, real estate, Bossman's recent purchase of a ranchette in Texas. All fascinating issues. <laughs> I'm sure everybody would agree. But These are the issues. <laughs> occasionally, I think it makes sense, Dan, to dig a little deeper into the issues that face our community. Specifically, I think you can say like location-independent entrepreneurs. Why not? Because, look, we didn't start our business because we thought, you know, business was our calling in life. We started it because we wanted personal freedom. To me, I think the thing that ties together all the topics on the show, even the health topics, right? It's fundamentally about having freedom to make the types of decisions that you want to make. That's something that I didn't have for the first 27 years of my life when I was basically doing whatever other people told me to do. Right. And acknowledging that you have choices. Virtually everything's a choice, right? And these businesses, especially for me, Dan, have become a way to open up my opportunities. And there are some parts of our lives that, you know, we have more and less choice. And one of the more restrictive areas that many location-independent entrepreneurs find is how they interact with their government. At minimum, in the case of travel, it is governments that issue your right, essentially, to move from country to country. That's right. We earn all this money, and it allows us to travel to all these exotic locations. But then there's these agents at the entrance <laughs> to these locations, and then all of a sudden you're kind of checked back to reality. So today we have a story of that reality. Recently, Boss Man and I sat down with Esther Jacobs, and she's a pretty remarkable individual, as you're going to hear today. But Boss Man, if you let me go to work here, I can give just a little bit of the backstory. Sure. Esther is a bit of a legend in her home country of the Netherlands. So if you talk to someone from Holland, it might be interesting to test if they know who Esther Jacobs is. In fact, she's one of the youngest people to be honored with knighthood, our first knight on the show, which I think is pretty awesome. She did some outstanding charity work, really stunning that you're going to hear about in today's show. She's also been a contestant on one of those Survivor programs. Ian, I know you've applied to be on Survivor many times and they've turned you down. I wouldn't make it, man. <laughs> I can barely get the food out of my fridge. How am I going to get it out of the forest, you know? Esther is a major media voice in Holland and a public speaker and author worldwide. And if you're interested to learn more, we're going to post links to all of Esther's work at tropicalmba.com slash Esther Jacobs. Well, that wasn't the reason we invited her on the show, though. Not because she's famous. We don't want to talk about Survivor, although it's super fascinating. <laughs> the reason we invited Esther on the show to talk about her experience being disowned by her country. Yes, that is the same country that offered her knighthood. 
We had one of these moments at our Barcelona conference. Esther came to the event and we hadn't met her before. Started to get to know her and then started to hear this story. And we just thought, oh my gosh, this is (laughs) incredible. I can't believe this has happened to you. The reason we wanted to tell this story today is we think it's a bit of a wake-up call. You know, this could happen to any of us living this lifestyle. And I think it's worth taking a look at what our relationship is to both our home country and any other countries we want to live in in the future. So Esther's going to walk us through what happened. But we start this conversation with how Esther became basically famous in Holland in the first place. It was a project called Coins for Care, where she raised $16 million for a charity initiative that she set up in 2002. always get what you want, but if you try sometimes. I was just freelancing, doing some market research, uh, traveling a little bit. So I was doing little things, but I always had the feeling I could do more. And when I came back to Holland to take care of my brother, who was 12 years younger at the time, so that was the reason I came back to Holland, I started approaching charities and asking them if I could do something for them. And the only thing they said, yeah, you can do our door-to-door collection or hand out flyers at the market. You know, there were no other opportunities for young professionals in the charity world back then. There was like 98 I'm talking about. And I still felt I wanted to do more, but I couldn't. And then I heard about the euro being introduced. And I don't know about you guys, but I always had this jar of foreign coins. You know, when you live in Europe or travel in Europe, you always have some German marks and French francs and whatever. And I couldn't believe that we couldn't use them anymore after the euro was introduced. And the only option you had for coins, so paper money you could exchange at the bank, but coins you had to take back to the central bank of the country they were from. So I would have to go to Berlin in Germany with my three German marks and to France with my five French francs. So I thought, what if I collect all these leftover coins that have no value to people, but that have value to charity? So that's how it started. You know, on this show, we talk so much about business, but you're in this world of charity. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are suspicious about, you know, what, what, what did you learn from, I mean, what eventually turned into a, a huge organization? Well, I learned a lot of things that I actually wish I hadn't learned, like that, you know, people in charity are just like any other people and they also have their egos and some go for money and they don't always do what they say or say what they do. So for me, that was a big disappointment. But also I met a lot of people, of course, who really do special things with or without money, with or without an organization. There's many people who find injustice or some other good cause and they raise money, they help other people, they help animals, whatever. So I met a lot of really, really special people. But that's something that you expect. And then the unexpected was that I met a lot of crooks. When you raised all the money then, did you give it to these charities? Is that what led to the dissolution? Or did you deploy the funds yourself? No, I thought I have this idea. It was more like a marketing idea to collect all the leftover currencies at this special moment, the euro introduction. And then I would give it to existing charities because, of course, they know about charity. They know about, you know, their projects. And I wasn't planning to be an expert in that. And I only gave money to charities that were registered in the Netherlands. And I thought that the organization that registers them also checks everything. But it turned out in the end that they don't. And I made a contract with each charity that they would have to tell me how they spent the money. And I would put it on the website, the Coins for Care website. 
And after I gave the money, like the 16 million euro to, I think, 140 charities, some of them told me exactly what to spend the money on. Like every penny I got reports, like 100 pages with names of people and locations, beautiful, very detailed. Others just said, we spend the money on our cause. And I was like, yes, <laughs> your cause is to eradicate hunger in the world. But how did you spend the exact amount of money that I gave you? And they couldn't tell me. They just couldn't. Apparently they didn't know. And that was a shock. But the biggest shock was that some charities just didn't want to tell me. They said, you have no right to ask. You gave us the money and now we go and spend it and you have to shut up. And that's when I got really upset. And actually, I was depressed for a while, I think, looking back, because I put so much effort into collecting all this money without any expenses. And then the charities didn't want to tell me what they spend it on. Yeah, in the United States, I think it's always been at least my suspicion that that's how these organizations are primarily run. And was that kind of your finding as well? Is that underneath these large organizations, only a small percentage of the profit actually goes to the cause? Well, what shocked me that you don't know, there is no transparency. And in Holland, there was no organization checking charities. So they could say whatever they want. We have no idea how much or how little gets to the final charity. And of course, you know, that leaves the conclusion that it's probably not much. Esther, what gave you the kind of confidence that it takes to start an organization like that? I think we all want to be that person that has such a great impact. But what actually is different between you and them, you think? The people that start and the people that think about it. If you think about starting a really big organization, it's a really big thing. I never thought about starting a big organization. I just saw an opportunity and I started acting. And looking back, I think I went through three stages. The first one was, oh, this is a nice idea, you know, and let's do something for charity. But then it got really difficult, of course, because nobody knew me. I didn't know anybody. You know, I didn't have any connections in the charity world. I didn't have any experience. So the more people told me, like, this is impossible, then the second motivation kicked in and was like, hey, if people say it's impossible, then I'll do it, you know, I'll find a way. So that was my second level motivation. And then it got really, really difficult because it's a huge organization. At one point, I had like 4,000 locations, 1,000 volunteers, 140 charities to manage, publicity, well, everything, basically. What got me through that was the fact that I found that some charities didn't want me to do this because I was communicating about my very low expenses and ways to get things done for free, and they didn't want me to do everything different and faster and cheaper. So they were trying to get me out. And that's when the injustice thing kicked in and I didn't know it, but anything that's injustice just makes me go crazy. So I become like a pit bull and I bite myself in the project and I didn't let go. So that's what kept me going when I probably would have stopped with the other two motivations. Esther, part of the reason we wanted to talk to you today is that, you know, you're a public figure in Holland, a professional speaker, obviously an asset for the country, but in 2013... They more or less fired you. Yeah. Uh, We've had enough of this woman. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we want to spend some time here and understand your story and how this went down. And then maybe we could talk about some of the implications for our listeners later. But bring us back to how it all got started. Well, basically, when I did the Coins for Care thing, I lived in Amstelveen. That's like a smaller town very close to Amsterdam. 
I own a house there. I have owned a house there for like 18 years. That's also the city hall where I got knighted by the queen. One day in 2013, I went to the city hall to renew my passport. And it's a pretty standard procedure, right? So I go there, but they didn't want to renew my passport because they said, Miss Jacobs, you don't live here anymore. So I was like, this must be a mistake. You know, what's going on? And they got a supervisor and they looked at the screen. They looked at me and they said, no, you don't sleep enough nights in your own home. There is a law in the Netherlands that says you have to sleep for four months in a location in order to be registered there. And I was like, this is new to me. You know, what is happening? And this must be a mistake. And can I have a look at my files? And I said, no, you can't have a look at your files because that's privacy. And I was like, it's my privacy, you know, (laughs) but they wouldn't let me look at the files. They wouldn't talk to me anymore. Who was this person that you were talking to? It was like a a regular city hall person and their supervisor. So you're sitting behind this table and these two people are there telling you where you're sleeping. How do they know? I didn't know. And they didn't want to tell me. So I said, well, you know, I travel a lot, but it's my own house. I pay taxes. I don't get any social security. So what's the problem? You know, I'm not doing anything wrong and I can prove everything. So please tell me what is wrong and we can set this straight. But they didn't want to talk to me anymore. They told me you have to wait until the research committee contacts you because you're now in the fraud section And I'm like, fraud? Fraud is when you get like social security or when you keep a rental house and not living there. This is my own house. I bought the house. I paid taxes, you know, and what is wrong? And they didn't want to tell me. So they sent away a taxpayer without a passport and they said, we know where you're sleeping. You're under investigation for fraud. Yeah, that's really, really weird. And so, okay, you're walking out. What do you do? I was so frustrated. In the beginning, I thought it was a mistake. And then I was treated like a criminal and I was frustrated. And then I got angry like this. How could this happen in the Netherlands, you know? So then I decided to, you know, wait for the people to call me. And of course, they never did. So I went back. I wrote letters. I got like declarations from a lot of people like the bank director in my town and from a lot of entrepreneurs and shops that I really live there, that I travel a lot. The fraud committee wouldn't even look at it. So at this point, you can't travel because you don't have a passport. Is that right? I could travel, but for example, to go to the United States where my father lives, the passport needs to be valid for six months and I couldn't go there. So I couldn't celebrate Christmas with my father. And that really, (laughs) that really made me angry because of course, like for many people listening, freedom is one of my main assets. And if you're not allowed to travel somewhere, that really takes away your freedom. And then I realized how important the passport is and how vulnerable you are when you cannot get it renewed. I'm doing the math on your status in this country, and it's much more elevated than a lot of your friends and peers and other citizens, right, in the Netherlands. And you aren't able to kind of fix this problem, right? So what is it like, you think, if you're someone that doesn't have all these connections? Because I assume you reached out to some of these people at some point during this? Oh, yeah. After a while, when I didn't get a reaction and nothing seemed to be happening, I pulled all the strings I could pull. So I wrote a blog And I posted it, I believe, on a Sunday afternoon. And on Monday morning, like the next morning, the ministers were having a meeting on my case. It was like a government meeting on my case. They discussed it for three weeks. Their conclusion was that the law saying that you have to sleep somewhere for four months in order to be registered, of course, is not meant for people like me. But technically the city hall was correct to apply it because the law is there and, you know, they applied it. 
So they said, the law is not prepared for pioneers like you, so we cannot help you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. And there I was. The city, they got, you know, permission to deregister me. So they deregistered me from my own house where I was actually living. The first thing I lost was my parking permit, which isn't a big deal. But then I lost my voting rights, my pension rights, my right to social security. My company got deregistered from the Chamber of Commerce because, ma'am, in order to have a company, you need an address. (laughs) So after my company got deregistered, they closed my bank accounts and they closed my phone plan because you need a Chamber of Commerce number to have a business account or to have a business phone plan. So it was like my world was falling apart. And they also kicked me out of the health insurance because health insurance in Holland is linked to registration because it's kind of sponsored. It's still very expensive. There was only one organization that kept saying, Miss Jacobs, to us, you are and will always be a citizen of the Netherlands. And that was a tax service. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting, Esther. I think a lot of people in this situation would probably fib or lie. And their government might even encourage it because they're basically saying to you, like, hey, you don't fit in a box here. Why didn't you just lie to these people? Or why didn't you just do what most people do, which is fib and just continue on with all the rights that you were enjoying before? Yeah, that would have been the easy way. I could have registered in another city. There were actually a lot of mayors inviting me, please register in my city, you know, we don't act so stupid and we would welcome you. But I thought this is weird, you know, if I'm like an honorable citizen paying taxes, you know, living my own life, but it's different from most people's lives because I live the life of a digital nomad, traveling a lot, then I should have an opportunity to do things honestly and transparently. I had just been promoting transparency for seven years in the charity world. So I wasn't going to, you know, save my own case by lying or by doing things undercover. For all these people that have to hide and have to lie in order to exist within the system, I'm already kind of a public figure and I dare to take the risk to do this publicly, to be very transparent, to communicate about everything that's happening, the good things, the bad things, you know, the fixes that I find, the temporary fixes, in order to expose this problem so that it might be fixed for future generations. It's not the easy way, but for me, it's the only way. Dan, this is very sobering for me. I think in the last couple of years that we've been doing this podcast and talking to listeners, some that are in similar situations, you know, traveling country to country while they're working, we talk about this all the time behind closed doors, but not so much in public for fear of what may happen to us in specifically what's happening to Esther. Yeah, I mean, I don't often think of us like this anymore, Ian, but I think if you look at our community as a whole, we're a fringe group. You know, we're doing things that are new that people weren't doing 15, 20 years ago in quite the same way. And I think necessarily governments are going to be behind the ball on that, right? I think it's really admirable what Esther's doing here. She's using her platform and her fame to say, look, you guys got to take note of this because there's an injustice here. But the scary part about doing that, of course, is what the governments are doing for you, giving you this privilege to travel is so important that you could be taking a real risk if you take your government to task. I think what's important to note here, too, is that Esther is a very loud voice in this fight. But I think that she is probably representational of thousands of people that are in a similar situation. And that are just quiet. So let's rejoin Esther's story and take a look at how she sought her own solution to this situation. (laughs) 
British Virgin Islands. Very transparent, under my own name, no trust company in between. I told them also about this. And at least by establishing that company, I could send out invoices again and I could just work. And having a company in the British Virgin Islands also has the advantage that you don't have to pay taxes. But I didn't pay much taxes anyway because I don't make a lot of money. But the good thing is that you don't have to keep any bookkeeping, any administration. And at that point, I started to feel so free. But still, the tax people are giving me trouble. I hope we're going to come to a solution. But it seems that the concept of a digital nomad just doesn't fit in their system. So they said, we will let you go if you can prove that you live in another country. And a while ago, I bought a house in Mallorca in Spain with my ex-boyfriend. So I registered there, not in Spain, but actually in the village. So now I have voting rights in the village, but I don't really exist in Spain. That's another bureaucratic adventure. But the tax service now seems to accept that I live in Mallorca, even though they know that I don't live in Mallorca, that I travel around the world. But it's the only thing that fits in their system. So they're actually drafting now some kind of a contract that I don't have to pay taxes in Holland anymore. And I'm really curious what it will look like. One of the things they will probably put in the draft is that I can't communicate about it. But I already told them my job is to communicate, so I will communicate about it. It's not fair, you know, if we find a solution and other people are not allowed to know. So I really don't know how this is going to end. Now, certainly you're not the only digital nomad in Holland. Has there been a rallying around your story? Have you met other people? And how are other people, your peers, reacting? Yeah, I get a lot of reactions. Most people want to stay anonymous because they have the same problem, but they found like an undercover solution. They registered with their parents or whatever. And normally you don't get exposed. You know, the government doesn't check these things. But if you get exposed by some coincidence, like in my case, a government letter got sent to my address and I had it forwarded. And if you forward government letters, they are sent back to the government agency and they don't check like what's going on, but they immediately think that any exception is fraud. So they put like an investigator on it. So that's what happened in my case. And many people are in the same situation, but they're trying to stay below the radar. I'm the one sticking out her head in order to help all these other people. It seems like you have an interesting relationship with the government. Is there an opportunity to collaborate there together? Is that something that you might be interested in, in terms of trying to solve problems like these? Or is it just too much of a bureaucracy? Oh, no, I'm always willing to solve problems. I'm actually the Ministry of Internal Affairs. They asked me to help sort out a solution for this. So for months, I've been into meetings and talks with all the parties involved to see if we can find a solution. But then the person responsible changed within the ministry and they tried to let this go. So the company they hired, they're actually called the Kafka Brigade from Franz Kafka to solve bureaucratic problems. They told the minister, like, we can't stop now, you know, we're close to reaching a conclusion and to give recommendations and we can't just stop. And the minister told them, we want you to stop. We don't want this anymore. It needs to go away. And the Kafka Brigade was hired, so they had to obey. But they said, well, you can make us stop, but Esther won't stop. So then I got invited again to the ministry with the new person responsible. And they read my book. I wrote two books about this topic. They read the book the night before our meeting. And they were like, no, is this true? Did this really happen? No, it's not possible. We have to do something about it. And I had sticky notes in the book with all the things that happened. And they said, I promise you, I will help. And after that, I never heard from them again. They don't answer my phone calls. They don't answer my emails. So 
Does this make you feel sad or what emotions do you have about your government? Do you still feel proud of them? I still feel proud that I'm Dutch and I'm proud of my Dutch passport. But these things don't make you proud of our political system and the way things are organized. Because Holland used to be like a very powerful nation. We would explore the world. We were famous for trade, for a lot of things. And now we're trying to, you know, push out people who are different and who are in fact promoting Holland. And people see it's a problem and there are solutions, but the system is protesting any change. And that's what often happens. And it's just a matter of time and persistence before some things will change. The percentage of, I don't want to implicate any listeners in any crimes, but the percentage of us that have put a little white lie onto a government document of a foreign country, say, we intend to live and work there for a few months, but we're going to say it's just tourism. What do you think about that situation that's happening in our community that we all have to tell these white lies to governments? Do you do that, for example, when you go to Thailand? How do you handle that situation? I think I'm forced to do this every week because every time you go into a different country at the airport immigration, you have to fill in the form with your permanent residence address. And even though I fill in the address of my own house, I'm not allowed to fill in that address because it's not my official residence address. And in the beginning, I left it blank and I said, okay, let me explain. (laughs) And they put me in this little cubicle and didn't let me go for three hours until I filled in an address. So... I also do these white lies, but in fact, it's committing fraud because there's more and more people living like us. I think there should be a solution so that we can also be traced and we are not forced to lie or to commit fraud. And it's not that difficult. It's just that our systems are based on fixed locations because people used to have fixed locations. And if you moved or emigrated, you would move from one fixed location to another one and that would fit in the system. And one of the solutions that has been mentioned by the Kafka Brigade is to create a virtual street where people like us can register. So we do fit in the system. We can pay taxes. I don't mind paying taxes to contribute, but I also want to have the benefits then if I need them. So it's not that we want to be outside of the system, but the system as it is right now doesn't leave us any choice. Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum to be in. I think that we've all committed these sins, you know, when you're going into the airport and you have to tell them where you're going to be staying for the next two weeks. Another one is when you come back to the United States and you tell them that you're on a pleasure trip instead of a business trip because it opens up a can of 200 questions. I think you have to decide when you have to give like a bureaucrat what he wants in his own language, when it's not worth fighting. And when it's worth to stand up for what we stand for and to make sure that the system changes in a way that's geared towards the future. So for me, it's a constant struggle. When do I try to fit in and not make like a big fuss? And when do I stand my ground and try to make things clear? So Esther, what are you up to nowadays? It seems like you've made a living for yourself as an advocate for the causes you believe in. What are some causes that you're speaking on, writing about? nowadays? Well, the funny thing is that my speeches and keynotes, they have different topics. Like first, it was about the charity project getting more results with few resources. And then it was about transparency. It turns into different things. And now it's about the system, what is happening to me in the Netherlands. But the main message is no excuses. Whatever the external circumstances are, like we cannot influence some things like politics, economics, other people, climate. There are some things you cannot influence. And if you try to control them, you just lose your energy and you become frustrated. 
So it's better to accept the situation as it is, whatever the situation is. Not think about how it should have been, could have been, why it is the way it is. Just accept it as it is and look for opportunities and then work with those. That gives you control over your own life and over your own business. This is what it always boils down to. I wrote a book about my relationship with Mr. Wrong in a Caribbean island. It's not about the relationship. It's also about making choices. If you choose to be in a relationship or in a business or in a certain situation, then make the best of it. And if you don't like it, either change something or if you can change it, get out. But don't stay in the situation and blame, you know, the person you're in a relationship with or your boss or the government, because that's making yourself a victim and it's not productive. What excites you most about this world that we're living in as you reflect on the digital nomad movement? Why are you pumped to be a part of that? Because anything is possible. If you look at how we traveled 20 years ago and how we travel now, I mean, we have internet, we have iPhones, we have guidebooks, we have meeting points, communication, and this is just the start. I gave a presentation, I think last week, about digital nomads and the slogan or the title that I gave it was, is it a trend or revolution? Many people see our lifestyle as a trend. You know, people used to go backpacking for a year and now they take a laptop and they call themselves digital nomads. But I think it's really a revolution because travel is getting cheaper. That makes people change their whole lifestyle. Like you can live in Barcelona and work in London City and just fly Ryanair daily up and down as a commute. And that might happen to China, for example, if planes get faster and cheaper even. So that will change the way we work and live. Internet is still a limitation. Some places have good internet, other places don't. But in a few years, we'll have 6G and internet won't be an issue anymore. Everybody will be connected everywhere, always. There are so many opportunities. We live in very special times and I'm very excited about that. You use the term digital nomads a lot. Some other people use the term location independent entrepreneurs. What does digital nomad mean for you? Yeah, it's a good point. Anybody can call themselves digital nomad. There's no rule for how nomadic you have to be or how digital you have to be. So it's a bit of an empty term. My first book I wrote about it is a handbook for world citizens. I didn't know the term digital nomad yet, so I called us world citizens. Because in fact, it doesn't have anything to do with where you live. There are people living in one country that consider themselves world citizens. They have like broad views and they're very open to new ideas. And there's also people traveling the world like this, you know, very narrow-minded. So they're not really world citizens. So apart from the digital part, this can also be applied. Are you a world citizen? Do you consider the world to be your playground? And do you feel responsible for things happening in the world? Or are you just playing around? Always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. This interview, I think, gave us a lot to think about. Although it's a serious topic, it was seriously fun to talk to Esther. She's got amazing stories and has done a lot of interesting work. You can find out more about her at tropicalmba.com slash Esther Jacobs. I think one of the cool things here is it's like pretty common for people like me and you, Ian, to complain about all this stuff. But now we got someone out there like being a real entrepreneur and doing something <laughs> about this stuff. You know, I think it's a cool opportunity for all of us to ask ourselves... How are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Do you remember psychology class? You know, you get your freedom, you get your location independence, you can live where you want, you got some cash flow coming in, you got some savings in the bank. And I think it's interesting to ask yourself, 
what can you do for your community? What can you do for your family? What can you do that's just a little bit bigger than helping yourself out? And it's cool to see that Esther has made a career. So Dan, out of that. I'm excited to see how our governments are going to respond to this movement. I don't think it's going to happen quickly. That's for sure. <laughs> but I do think that they're going to have to address this kind of head on as more people start living this alternative lifestyle. Super fascinating stuff. Definitely want to cover more of this kind of topic on the show. Love to hear your comments. You can see the links, show notes at tropicalmba.com slash Esther Jacobs. Boss man, I'll see you next Thursday morning. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.